and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Dan Jeffries, the Chief Technical Evangelist at Pachyderm, a leading data science platform. He's a prominent writer and speaker on all things related to the future. He's been in software for over two decades, many of those at Red Hat and is the founder of the AI Infrastructure Alliance and Practical AI Ethics. Dan, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Appreciate it. The first question that I always get started with all our guests is how you were first exposed to computer science, to software, and why you decided to make it a career. That's a funny story. I was at New York University, and I had just graduated. And uh, my father called me up and said, congratulations, I'm going to pay your rent for six more months, get a job. And I said, I'm sorry, yeah, but I'm not sure that I know how to do anything. I had studied what I jokingly call liberal arts. And, and so I said, and he said, that's your problem. And so I, <laughs> I was working at a software company as the assistant to the secretary. That was my college job. And I went to the IT guy and I said, teach me everything that you know, I'm desperate. And so he would tear apart a computer and say, put it back together and don't ask me any questions unless you absolutely need to. And uh, so I, I learned over time that kind of tenacity with figuring out computer problems was actually the greatest skill that most folks uh, would just give up on a problem after a period of time and just say, it's impossible, I can't do it. And I ended up naming my my first company, Bulldog Data Services, after that kind of tenacity, just like banging my head against something for a period of time until it works. And computers are very literal. They, they either work or they don't. There's no in-between. There's no, despite fuzzy math, 
there's no fuzzy state really in most computer problems. Either the web server is serving pages or it's not. So that was how I got into it. And uh, I've been in, in technology ever since. That's a great story about, yeah, I couldn't agree more about how computer science is different in, in a lot of ways of other fields because you can't actually understand what's going on at almost every single level. And so there is always some sort of explanation when things aren't working as you would expect. It's not always obvious what that explanation is, of course. And one of, that's one of the problems that I always ask when I'm interviewing folks is tell me about a time when something went wrong in your initial response. We all do pattern matching in our brain and we say, oh, doctors do it, tech folks do it, everyone does it. And you go, this is a DNS error, this is it. And so usually that's a heuristic that's about 80% when you get really skilled at something. But I'm always interested in how people problem solve after they run through those basic heuristics and it then run up against a wall. Do they start talking to people? Do they dig into the web? Do they start pulling up books? Do they go on YouTube? Do they talk to everyone? How do they keep evolving until they get to a solution? Because that's really the most important thing in life is that you always find a way to get it done. Interesting. And at the risk of possibly going on a tangent, is there one approach that you found is vastly more successful than others? Or do you think that everyone finds their own way to do it that works for them? I think everyone finds their own way to do it, but I will say there's two primary there's two primary methodologies that I've discovered with people over time who are great problem solvers. And I, I think that tends to be where you fall in the introversion, extroversion spectrum. I think everybody is actually on both sides of it, a little bit of both, but we tend to fall on one side or the other. And if you're a bit more extroverted, then you tend to reach out to other folks and you build a tremendous network of very intelligent people who are experts and you ask questions and that kind of sends you down a pathway of leading. doesn't mean they'll give you the answer, but they'll point you in the right direction and then they'll be able to follow up on that. They still need tenacity. They still need to be at the keyboard. They still need to actually be solving problems on their own, but folks will reach out to their network, get a tip when they get stuck. Other folks who are, I think, more introverted will tend to go to YouTube, go to the web, go to a bunch of tutorials, dig into forums. They're master searchers. Um, they mastered Google long before mastering Google was a thing. And they're able to just dig in with that. And then they might occasionally reach out to colleagues uh, when they get stuck, if, they really, if they've gotten enough information. So I find those two approaches are absolutely critical. And you need to be really good at one of them, probably good at both in the long run. Uh, but I think uh, people tend to fall on one or two of those. And whenever I talk to folks, those are the abstract high points that I'm looking to, to hear when people are talking to me about their problem solving. Very interesting to tie back to people's personality traits. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Now, to get into topics that are more related to this, what we normally talk about on the podcast, machine learning, I was just watching your talk at Rise of AI, and great talk, by the way. I loved how you did focus on the positive aspects of AI because of, like you said, so much negativity out there already. And you, something interesting you said at the very beginning of the talk was, history of man is the history of intelligence, and artificial intelligence is the technology that changes everything. So can you go into a little bit very briefly of what you mean by that and something that you're excited about in the future of AI that others might not necessarily expect. Yeah, I'm glad you like that one. And, and that one got a really positive response from folks because I think there, there tends to be three very negative stories about artificial intelligence. One, I think, has strong validity and the other two don't. It tends to be Terminators killing everyone, you know, machines taking all the jobs, or bias. I think the bias is a, is a very real one and needs to be properly addressed, and there are practical ways to deal with that. I, I think the 
all the jobs being destroyed is we've already destroyed all the jobs at multiple points in history. And you didn't go hunt the water buffalo to, to make your clothes today. And so specialization of labor, it's easy to see all the things that will be destroyed, but it's hard to see all the jobs that are created. So you can't envision a, a web developer or a, or a graphic artist to an 18th century farmer because it's built on the back of 20 different inventions, right? Electricity, binary, computers, the web itself. So you wouldn't, it's, you can't envision all these different things and then understand the jobs that will be created. And the, the other thing is the tech can be used for bad things, but it's a universal technology. And it really is about the humans behind it. I don't worry about sentient machines. I worry about you know, people who are, humans don't need any help being jerks. They, I worry about narrow artificial intelligence in the hands of, of folks doing things with it that, that obeys them completely. But the beautiful thing is when you really look at the sweep of history, you look at man, mankind and, and the way that it's changed over time, every single time that we leap forward, it is an explosion of intelligence. Even if you think about something like the agrarian revolution, initially, the natural inclination is to just plant your crops. First of all, the, there's an inclination to stop running around, chasing things, and figure out the highest impact food that you can eat, which is one of the reasons humans chose grain, because you had something like 50x the amount of calories that you'd get, right? the energy that you get from the harvesting of it. So it naturally became the same thing with rice and these other kind of staple crops of mankind. There's a reason they became the staple crops, corn, maize. So it made sense to first plant them and be close to the food and then build your communities around these. Of course, people took over the entire field and then originally they didn't understand why their crops weren't growing in the next years. And so then you get to the kind of Romans and they figure out, okay, we well leave half of the field fallow, meaning meaning we have half of it's empty. But then you get to the later stage of the agrarian revolution. This is really an, an insight. This is why I say it's an intelligence explosion. This is to say, hey, what if we divided the land into chunks, into a grid, and we rotated them around into three parts, right? So that way the vast majority of the time we're planting on most of the soil which allows us to basically produce a lot more food, which leads to a population explosion. So these are really intelligence explosions. And artificial intelligence itself, machine learning, is a dramatic accelerator for this. It's like infinite regress. You get to, you add intelligence to everything. I'm very fond of saying that there's two kinds of jobs in the future, that One's done by artificial intelligence and one's assisted by artificial intelligence. And in my opinion, everything will be assisted by artificial intelligence. And in, in that article, I talked about, for instance, music right, or the arts. And think about if you could, as a musician, take out your guitar and play an amazing riff. And then the algorithm would say, cool, here's 50 continuations of that. And you listen to them and you go, you know what? Number eight is amazing. Give me more variants on that. And you can see a genetic algorithm or something behind that. You can see if you just look a little bit into the future how the things we're working on today could evolve into those types of things. And then all of a sudden you're co-creating with the machine learning algorithm. This type of stuff is already happening. You see the Magenta project out of Google that's focused squarely on the arts and, and, and things like that. These are the things that really excite me. And that's why I try to keep a very positive outlook about these things. Look, sometimes these things will do bad things. That's the nature of humanity. Everything is a dual use. It's just, but for my, in my opinion, when I look at the positive that's going to do, and I think about having a smartwatch with a little you know, pin prick on there that you know keeps track of my cholesterol and my blood and says, hey, by the way, you, you, you probably should go to the hospital this week, right? Before I go face down on my oatmeal, then the chances of survival become tremendously higher. It's, it's looking at these patterns of health. And we're already seeing folks starting to, to work on things like the, the seed of this, like there's cardio labs and 
in the AI infrastructure alliance that's doing, they're already working on the seeds of studying the patterns of our heart and our health and making predictions of that so that when somebody comes in, it's not just completely reactionary. Imagine you could take a a, a, a little uh, app on your phone and you take a picture of a, a mole that you're worried about. The problem is right now, and the AI says, okay, cool, you probably should worry about this, make an appointment with your doctor. Right now, when you call into the doctor, the nurse has really no idea whether you're just a you know, crazy person who likes talking to, to doctors or whether you have a real problem. Or are you the hypochondriac or do you have a real problem? But now if you're able to send that thing along, it says, hey, there's a 90% probability that this is a problem. Then triaging changes, life-saving changes. They can bring people in and say, you know what, you you are coming in right away. And the person who's you know coming here 50 times because they like talking to the doctor gets you know pushed down for two weeks. That's okay. And that's gonna really change the, the way that we do everything. And this is the thing that really excites me about where this industry is going. And very few people see it because there's so much focus, fear and negativity, because that is fear and negativity is what drives clicks. And that's the unfortunate thing. You look at uplifting news on Reddit, and even me, I love to read uplifting news, but I probably read the headline and go, great, they found a puppy. And then I go right back to reading the world news of, oh no, what has this horrible person done? And I'm so angry. And that's the nature of mankind, right? We are a fear-based creature. And the fear is the, the fire under the butt of humanity. It's the thing that like makes us build cities and, and things like that. But, but there's a beautiful side to life, right? There's there's other side where we can create these amazing things that are really going to help us. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that answer, especially the focus on the art and working with it to be working with the AIs to become more creative. We're already seeing this being pioneered by a lot of the gameplay uh, game players like in chess go where they're studying the AIs to become more creative in their own games. And also in healthcare where I have an aura ring on my finger, I have the level CGM. And I think one day I've already gotten so much you could call it intelligence out of these that like the the app on the oil ring will tell you when your optimal bedtime is. It'll tell you when you should start to wind down based on your prior patterns. And that's all super useful data. And it's really incredible to imagine what that will look like when all these things are actually connected with their data in obviously a way that is private and everything, all, all that. Private and secure. We don't want it to be, well, welcome. It's time to drink a cola. Your blood sugar is low. So we don't want, uh, there's a joke in Futurama where Fry is getting an under underwear advertisement in his dreams, right? So we, we want some places to be private and, and as long as they, but I think there's a possibility to do this. Differential privacy, you know, encryption, homomorphic encryption, all these things are coming down the pipe as well. That'll make it easier for us to deal with it. We just have to engineer that security in into the entire pipeline. Yeah, absolutely. And so bringing it back to more of the present day, can you talk about the adoption curve of AI, of ML, and where we are, where you think that we are right now? Yeah, so if you look at that famous diffusion of innovation curve that everybody loves to put on their business slides, it <laughs> so it's become something that you don't see anymore. It's become a cliche. But it came from a book called Diffusion of Innovation in the 1960s where they looked at how technology was adopted over time. And there's the, the early adopt there's the kind of pioneers, there's the early adopters, you know, there's the early majority, late majority and the laggards. And I think we're very much in the early adopter stage. If you really think about where artificial intelligence machine learning has been, it, it went through multiple AI winters. It was basically being held, kept up by only a few universities. They were telling kids, don't study this stuff. It's a toy. It doesn't work. And because we didn't have the processing power, we weren't able to test it. It, was, it wasn't like theoretical physics. It's a very practical thing. So that you can do a lot of math and say, this is going to work. But if it doesn't actually solve a problem in the real world, then people just 
dismiss it. So we had that for a long time. So it's primarily just folks working in uh, the academic space and kind of skunk works projects within big tech. And so now, though, you see this kind of AlexNet, right? you see this sort of explosion utilizing GPUs. Image detection then goes very quickly. It falls very quickly in terms of our ability to recognize objects and convolutional neural nets. And then you have this kind of explosion of different approaches. Every couple of years now, we get something new, whether it's reinforcement learning or transformers. Uh, you mentioned the AlphaGo thing. If you haven't seen the documentary, it's amazing. I'm sure that you have. But it does feel almost like it's creative, right? There was a moment where that pulls the million to one shot move and it's and then the and then Lisa Dahl does the same thing and it like tears you up for like humanity has still got something. But so we're still in that so now it's trickled down into the big tech companies, fang companies. And the thing is they have this huge web scale infrastructure and engineers that can build tools infrastructure to host all these things. The, the, the machine learning scientists come out of the, you know, the darkness and they're like, cool, we, we, we can do, we've got this crazy idea. We're going to take this rule-based, heuristic-based translation system you've built up over a decade, Google, and we're going to build this thing called Neurotranslate. And like, but we need to, we need new chips to, to run it or else we need a whole date. I read they need a whole, they would need two or three data centers of GPUs to run it if they didn't invent TPUs in, other, in order just to do the inference properly. So they basically come in with this and then they build these kind of, these infrastructures of, you know, built on containers and giant orchestration systems, Borg and Omega, right? Which then becomes Kubernetes on the inside to host all this. So they can throw anything they want in it. The average enterprises, you know, don't have that level. They're not going to build the wheel and the car and the streets at the same time. So we've got to get to a point where the infrastructure is now starting to become more commodified or more consistent over time. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of the folks who spent their time, I think in the, we just had Spell ML join the Infrastructure Alliance. One of those folks ran Facebook research, AI research for, for many years. And Tectons in the Alliance, they, they were folks working at, at Uber for a time. They invented the concept, as far as I can tell, of a feature store. And then, but then they were like, wait a minute, this might have broader applicability, started their own company, build the Technon feature store. And now all of a sudden feature stores are a thing. So we're solving the problems. We don't even know what problems half of the time we're going to solve as we start bringing together large scale data science teams to build practical applications. We're just beginning to figure this out. So very much early adopter phase. The software is a little rough around the engines. It reminds me a lot of the early days of Linux where it was for hobbyists. You had to know 50 different subtasks just to get it working and installed, much less do anything interesting. And, and then you needed a lot of glue to stick it all together. That's exactly where we are now. I like to say we're in the Netscape and SSL just got invented phase of the internet rather than the eBay is worth a bazillion dollars phase. So <laughs> eBay can't exist. E-commerce can't exist. You can't order pizza online and, and Amazon doesn't exist until Netscape and SSL. So you have a window into the world as a fundamental technology and an encryption to, to, to encrypt transactions on the wire. You can't get to the point of e-commerce. So that's where we are in the machine learning space. We're at the SSL and Netscape just get invented. Now what are we going to do with it? And, which is an exciting place to be. There's so, you look in the space and there's so much money coming into it and there's so much sort of hype in the business media, I think rightly so this time. And yet it's still so very early in terms of it's either the, the big companies that have built stuff with it or like very cutting edge companies like someone like Stitch Fix, which have rolled ML into their entire pipeline as a differentiator for them. But the, it, had, it required a very sort of visionary approach 
to consider doing something like that. And they had to roll all of their own infrastructure. They had to make it up as they went along. Tomorrow's companies are not going to be able to do that. They're going to want to buy something or pull down a bunch of open source tools and cobble it together into with Lego, you know, as a series of Lego bricks in order to build these infrastructures. And then we start getting a, a, the, like the WhatsApp effect, right? The, a lot of VCs like to talk about the WhatsApp effect where thir- they used 35 engineers to reach 400 million people with that application. But they couldn't have done it if they didn't already have easy drag and drop GUI building and uh, encryption protocols for end-to-end communication and right large-scale messaging apps. that All these things had to exist before them to just pull from these technologies, build on top of them. That's where we need to, to get to that early majority phase. Mm-hmm, exactly. And something that I've slowly realized over the course of doing this podcast and just looking at the landscape as a whole is how big the gap is between the research and the infrastructure, the engineering, the actual products that are coming out of everyone except for those, like you said, those big companies that had those Skunkworks projects already in place for a long time. And so we're starting to move into your concept of the canonical stack of ML. I've also heard you call it the Linux of ML since you also have had previously a lot of experience in that at Red Hat. Can you talk a bit about what those pieces look like, what the categories of those Lego bricks are, and what you imagine uh, if those will change in the future from where they are now? I think that they'll change in the future. I think when I wrote the canonical stack piece, uh, what I was reacting to was what I call the NASCAR slide, which is the here are the 85 categories of machine learning and the 100 logos in their individual neat box uh, that fits into those. And, and my initial thought of having seen the development over time of lots of different technologies is that it's not going to be 85 categories. It's going to be three to five categories of general things. And and these logos don't fit neatly into a box. They do multiple things within that framework. And so we spent a lot of time actually internally, as I was writing it, think about how to represent that visually. And we ended up with that graph that has four categories. I asked all the companies to honestly rate themselves, which is amazing. They all did it, with maybe one exception that I had to nudge. But but no, they they honestly rated themselves and said, we're really good at this. We're okay at this. This is not our thing. And this is something that's only in the works, right? And so we wanted to have like colors across the different parts of it. I don't know that the the categories that I've chosen are are final. That was my attempt to draw a large scale understanding of the broad tools that I had started to see developed. So there's this, and it's been a few months since I've written the article, so I probably will I don't have the, the official titles that I gave them, but it, as I look at this, the marketplace and the tools that are developing, there's this data aggregation wrangling stage, we're starting to call it data wrangling. That term didn't exist, again, in the fast evolution of this space, the data wrangling didn't exist. But it's grabbing all the data, figuring out the data set, cleaning it, transforming it, figuring out what you're going to do with it, thinking about what kinds of approaches you're going to take to solving a problem. I left that part out, the creative aspect where the person's looking at the data and thinking about what are the, the pieces, that, what are they going to do with this? What approach are they going to take to try to do something with it? And then there's this sort of experimental phase where you're doing hyper, where things like hyperparameter tuning and running 30 different iterations of a model and trying to figure out which one is the best approach and scheduling that out on, on multiple GPUs, GPUs, 
and getting back statistics and saying, this is a promising avenue, let's go in this direction. So there's kind of experiment tracking, hyper-retuning, scaling, all, all that such a thing. Then there's, a, there's the, this kind of pipeline. This, so all of that pipeline fits across all this, but this sort of pipeline and productionization stage, right? So the pipeline stage is just finishing the model, tuning it, making sure that it works to the point that you have something that's like ready to do inference, and then that you're exposing it to the real world. You're sunsetting an old version, putting it into production. Maybe you're starting to do some of the old things we do in IT, the, the blue-green testing, testing with a subset of customers. Is it giving me good answers? And, that, and then there's really this ongoing production phase where you start to bring in the monitoring and management. Monitoring and management has to change. The Fiddler and Y Labs are in the AI Infrastructure Alliance. I think New Relic just joined. There's a number of folks getting into this space. And I remember having a discussion with some of these teams, and they had told me that the monitoring had to change even. In other words, the monitoring systems, how we built them now, are very stateless. Is the web server up or down? Historically, you want to know if the web server has been bouncing because you want to know if there's a problem. But in general, you don't really care about the history all that much. In the machine learning space, you do care about the history, right? It, you need to be able to monitor things like drift over time. And so you do need to know all of its decisions and how they relate back. So I think the engines are going to be different for the productionization. You have these model serving parts of the stack. Those are actually, I think it, that was a relatively... I don't want to say easy, but it was an easier problem to solve than some of the earlier ones because we had precedence for productionizing applications. So you see things like Selden, Algorithmia, et cetera, in the Alliance, who they can sunset an old version, tell you which one is there in production, which one you used last, and, and it's doing its inferencing. And then there's, it's you know, my colleague, Jimmy uh, Whitaker, has come up with this concept that I really love, the machine learning loop, that it's not a finished, a model is never finished. That once it's in production and doing things in monitor, that's just the beginning. And it goes back to the beginning because it has to learn from new data is flowing in. It's, it's not like handwritten code where it's, I need to log someone in. That code is basically complete. I might add a couple nice features to it, but it's basically complete. I've hand coded the logic. The logic is learned and it has to continually update in the machine learning. So if you have telemetry data flowing in from all of your your cars in the field, all of your Teslas in the field, the, the machine has to continue to learn from those. The model has to continue to learn from those to be relevant. If you're doing fraud detection, it has to detect new kinds of attack patterns, right? There was the famous attack of jackpotting on different ATMs that was taking money around the world, right? Where they had to hack into these and you need an algorithm to detect that kind of fraud versus you know, new kinds of fraud is always being, humans are very creative, right? So the algorithm's got to learn from all these new examples. The same things from if you're doing, if you're building something to do recommendations for your e-commerce site, right? If, you, if your model is stagnant and it's recommending clothes, for instance, then as soon as the season change, you've got drift. All of a sudden, you've got now it's recommending close from the winter and it's springtime. It's now it's it's its relevance has gone way down. So there's this loop that happens. It gets to the end of the pipeline, and that's really just the beginning. It has to loop back to the beginning and learn from these new things. I think the the things that are developing fastest are starting to be, I think, monitoring and management serving. I think there's also bits at the end of bias detection. Right, explainability is going to become incredibly important as especially as legislation kicks in. And people want to know how these things are making decisions. So explainability is going to be important. I think of something like Selden's alibi or, or something like that. that's going to continue to expand. Some of the earlier stuff, I think the hyperparameter tuning uh, algorithms are going to continue to improve. I think scheduling it out onto huge systems 
Uh, I think the interface between all these systems, the connection point is going to evolve. The pipelines are going to continue to evolve. When I look at something like Pachyderm, which is you know where I work in full disclosure, one of the things that excited me about them is they, they have this data-driven pipeline, which is an inversion of the way we've done things. Too many approaches try to port over the old software development paradigm we developed over 40 years. We, so we figured this is a natural place to start. It works. Bring over the hand-coded logic, DevOps, agile framework. Problem is it doesn't, it's not a perfect fit. It is, it's a square peg round hole. And so if I have to, the data is secondary in a traditional coding application. If I, I, I hand, again, hand code all the logic for a login in my website, I only need to access the data to test the password hash, the username, and that's it. So the data is secondary. In, in the machine learning space, the data is primary. So if you have to write a while loop every to check every time your data changes, is it changed, is it changed, is it changed? Very inefficient. Whereas if the data-driven pipeline, and this is what I love about Pachyderm, is to say it can signal that a whole bunch of changes to your data have happened. Please go do something within the pipeline itself. So that's very exciting. The other thing I think Pachyderm brought to the table was data versioning, data linear. And so this is a place where this was a very hard problem to solve. It came out of the copy-on-write file system sitting in front of an, like, an infinite store on the web. If you think of old copy-on-write file systems like ZFS, which were fantastic. I loved using those back in the day. They were bound by the physical hard drives you could put in them. So you could only take so many snapshots. Now we can put that in front of an S3 bucket or a GCP bucket, and it's essentially infinite on the back end. We don't have to worry about some cluster file system like Gluster or Ceph or anything on the back end. It's just a giant infinite clustered storage that they're worrying about. It's almost like magic. So you can take infinite snapshots every time the data changes, and, and we use a kind of Git-like tracker to show the lineage of those changes over time. That becomes very important too, because that gives you a level of immutability that you need in data science. In other words, if you, other approaches have tried to make immutability optional, they, they use this metadata approach where they go, cool, we're gonna record that these experiments happened on the data. The problem is the state can change out from under you with the data. So if you've got a, a million you know, videos in a directory or a million uh, images in a directory at 1024 by 768, you run 50 experiments on it. And then you record that to a metadata server, I ran it on this directory. And then someone comes in and crunches those files down to 500 by 500, overwrites them. Those 50 training runs are now not reproducible. They, the metadata refers to a state that no longer exists. So unless the immutability is there, it's a failed state. It's not optional. And so these kinds of things, though, are still very much in flux, right? I even look at, obviously, I want Pachyderm to be tremendously successful. But at the same time, I look at that kind of approach, that design pattern, as being essential. Regardless, I'm 100% I'm confident in that design pattern being very important to this space and something that's totally different and evolving and is, is something that we're going to see a lot of movement. The other one I'm seeing is this feature store thing, very interesting in the way that's developing. It's almost, I can't quite get how Pachyderm and, like, and the feature stores fully interact. They both do one thing really well, and there's the Venn diagram's not perfect. One does structured data really well. The other one does binary data very well. But Pachyderm can obviously do structured or unstructured data, but, not, but is it better to have it in this database where you've already extracted all the features you can serve to other libraries? So again, there's even points where I'm not sure how the things fit together, but that is a short-term state. Over time, someone will look at this problem in enough different angles and go, ah, the answer is this type of connector or this omnibus answer to this problem that folks are having. And this is what's exciting. This is the, the evolution of this space over time. 
and all these kind of tools beginning to come together. I see a very, like a mean stack or a lamp stack of AI. I don't see anyone building an end-to-end -end solution. Don't believe the marketing that says end-to-end. -end. None of them are, are, are there yet. They're all rough in different pieces, but they'll come together as a series of Lego bricks over the next five to 10 years to be something that many people can build amazing applications on top of. There's so much there in that answer. And I can go, I feel like I can go in like a million different directions. I've written a few of them down so we can touch on them a bit later. But something that the one that you just mentioned of uh, how the stack's going to evolve and the things that don't quite connect at the moment, something that has really evolved my thinking on while doing this podcast has been talking to people like you, people like Willem Pinar at Feast, people like Andreas Janssen at uh, Replicate. They're building these, they're trying to build these abstractions and these abstractions that are going to connect to the different parts of the stack together where you have the like the concept of a database which was from the old software world and then you're like you said you're taught you're starting to wrangle that data collect it have a data scientist or even non-technical people be able to wrangle that data and start to make it into that second abstraction of features which is where the feature store comes in and then we have that pipeline that takes that feature those features and brings it into a model and then the model becomes the core abstraction for everything after that so I just think it's a super interesting way of trying to bring in some of these uh, core abstractions and think about how they'll play a part in the different parts of, of the canonical stack, as you say. Going uh, to the AI infrastructure alliance, it seems like one of the things that you're trying to do is find a way to connect all these different companies so that they'll work together. So just wondering what your thoughts in general are about building those sorts of common abstractions. Yeah, so one thing I want to be real clear on with the Infrastructure Alliance, there's, so I think, 30 members of it now. You absolutely are not going to have 30 different software vendors in your personal enterprise stack. So there's sometimes there's a misunderstanding. People say, cool, I'm, I'm going to buy all these pieces. No, that's not how it's going to work. What, it, what I'm saying, and there are even competitors within the space. We, we decided very early that it wasn't just going to be, hey, are you the only one who gets to do this once you join the Alliance? We felt uh, very strongly that quickly that would get unwieldy and that people would also move into other spaces. So we couldn't predict. So it's better to have coopetition. So I foresee, and, we're, and there's a lot of talk internally about building a more abstract general purpose architecture, and there's different movements within the group itself to build those things. And my sense is that you'll have two to five of companies being pulled in and plugged into those different layers. You might have a you might have Pachyderm for data lineage and ClearML for experiment tracking. You might have you know, Seldon Algorithmia for serving, you know, you know, Fiddler you know, for monitoring, Y Labs for monitoring, these kinds of things. So I, I would I could see that and it would depend on which problem you really need to solve. You might have already built an internal system that you're particularly happy with for uh, that does one particular thing. And so you need to have kind of glue. And yes, we're trying to, in the early days, some folks said, cool, when does Das Uber architecture come out, right? Of with where all the things connect seamlessly through this magical protocol. And by the way, we are talking to, I just saw something that blew my mind the other night out of the, the Octo team at Azure that they're looking to open source. It's a, a universal interface to a lot of these things. And a lot of the folks have worked on Kubeflow and then abstracted even further. So I, something like that could potentially become part of the projects that we help to foster within this space. And that would be exciting. I ex actually didn't think the Alliance would quite get there for, for several years and we would focus on 
building the interoperability just within the teams themselves. But that's a possibility that, that there might be some specific projects that help build the glue layer in between these things, which would be incredibly exciting. But we're not there yet. And I would say a lot of times the alliance is really trying to build what I call micro alliances between the teams. Part of my initial sort of selfish desire to have this was cool. I want to interact with a lot of these different companies because we can't do this on our own. Like against, I called it the rebel alliance against the, the kind of sage makers of the world, the end and we do everything, but, but you don't uh, say. And I think that to do that, they have to build integration points. And that means their engineering teams need to be talking to each other. They need to be building joint documentation. Sales teams need to be talking to each other, right? Uh, architects need to be talking to each other. They need to have synergy. And that's started to happen. That's been one of the most exciting things of the Alliance for me. Happens behind the scenes. But I think we're, we've already seen a number of the companies start to build integrations on both sides. I think Neuro has built one already, is, is building one right now with the packeter. And we've talked to UbiOps. Uh, we've done one with Silden, and, and that one's continuing to accelerate. They did some work with us as well. And I've seen Algorithmia do three or four, maybe five or six different joint papers with folks. And I, I can't even keep track of all the little ones that are happening. And that's what's exciting for me. I, I had so much snarkily say, well, where's your super architecture of this alliance, quote unquote, the other day. And I'm like, this, th you're missing the point of what this is yet. Okay. But when we get to the level where we can abstract it, because we understand the problem completely, I'll push the alliance in that direction. And that's great. Okay. But right now I'm not here to create like the, the old joke of the, there's 10 standards. Like you know, we, what we need is a new standard right now. Why don't we have 11 standards, right? So I'm not hungry to get there. What I am hungry to get there is to make sure that all these companies are working hard to interoperate, to talk to each other. I, I consider myself a, a gardener. There's, and when you think about writers, there's two types of things, right? There's architects or gardeners. The architects are plan every aspect of their epic adventure, the backgrounds and detail of every story and how every plot point will start off before they write a word. I'm not that thing. I'm a gardener. I plant a lot of different things. Some of the plants die. I didn't water them. Okay, that comes out. Some of them landed on poor soil, choked by the brambles. They get pulled out. And then I watch which ones start to come up and I tend the garden in that direction and, and I, I shape it. And what I'm seeing is the, these folks starting to work together, have deeper communications. And out of that comes a deeper abstraction or integration points. You have to do two or three integrations to understand, you know what, in doing these inter integrations, we've done it this way three times. Can we abstract that? Can we turn that into an API? Can we turn that into a standard way for us to deploy a model? Can we think that, can we do that as a standard way to do lineage? Brachyderm, for instance, is thinking about a universal lineage ID. Right now, you get little different hashes for different parts of the stage. But what if I could just say, okay, I want to understand my model from beginning to end, when it was pulled in, what code ran, when, what time, what, which snapshot it worked off of which directory. I want to see its whole lineage over time with a single number. And if that single number could then be passed on to other groups, then you start to build things. But you have to solve one problem before you get to the next one. So I think folks get a little impatient. That's okay. I understand it. But I want us to get, I want us to crawl walk, run. And the more that I can build these interactions with different folks, facilitate the communications, and also get solutions integrators involved in it. I've made a big push recently at Infrastructure Alliance to get solutions integrators in, and they've been uh, coming out of the woodwork, which is great, because these are folks that have been traditional IT teams, like I ran it back in the day, my first company, and they have moved into building, supporting this very complicated infrastructure. You don't want to be a data scientist understanding Kubernetes and and Docker and model serving and how to 
make sure that your feature store is highly is replicated and backed up and all, and that your monitoring engine is working you need a dedicated IT team to do these things and so a lot of these teams have started to switch into this the more of those folks that get involved in it they're going to help push this too because they're going to be the ones deploying it in the field when folks like you come in and say you know what we've we've run into problems we didn't expect and this is the, when you have two or three data systems working together it's great you could do your you could do your books in excel but if you're trying to do your expenses for a 40-person company in Excel, you're going to be in trouble. Just if you choose these kind of one-off tools, oh, cool, this was a pip install, it works perfectly for a one-man team, eventually like you get to 30 data scientists and you start to run into challenges, right? So that's really the point that we're getting. How do we get all these folks talking to each other? And how do we get the beginnings of the canonical stack at the stage that it's at? The most foolish thing that I could do right now would be to say, this is the canonical stack. It already exists. It's done. And it's baked. Here are the four pieces that you need. And I, they will never change in the next five years. That's foolish. And I understand folks want to just have a soundbite. They want to just have the, tell me what to do with it. We're going to get there. But I'm a part of the, the, the I'm, I'm a part of the force that's helping get us there. And I, I play a small role in it, but I'm helping shape the future in a way. And that's what's very exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that you had mentioned in there was the idea of how scale basically breaks everything. It's you can use a spreadsheet to track like three experiments and maybe with one other person on your team, and you can do that effectively. But when you have to run these experiments at scale, when you have to have 100 experiments running at one time, when you have to have collaboration across 10 different teams, and you have to be tracking that data lineage where you have all these regulations that are existing, GDPR, and also ones that are more likely to come down the pipeline, need like you said, ability for auditability reasons. And that was an example of a problem that you had a phrase that I really liked, which was problems that companies don't know that they're going to have when they start to adopt machine learning. So, and I'd like to split this section into maybe two parts. The first of a startup, maybe just starting to use ML. What might be an example of some of those problems that you're able to see because of your wide view of this space that a founder who is just starting to do this stuff might not necessarily realize. So one of the things I see is how do you standardize on the tool set? So it's one thing to just go grab the most cutting edge library that came out of Stanford and package it up and say, okay, cool. I got my model to work on my laptop. That's wonderful. That's, that is, you should consider that basically your exploratory experimental phase because in production, in a real application that's supported that, where customers are on the line, you're doing fraud detection, you're doing something that matters to people, you're recommending engines, you're doing, uh, you're triaging support tickets, right? These have a real world impact, right? So you're going to need to know specifically which of that, which of those libraries is running in production, why? Um, you're going to need to be able to know that you need to get to those again to run that model again. If you look at something like uh, data lineage, we, my coworker Jimmy just did a, a an article on Label Studio and Pachyderm, and uh, I think we're potentially doing one with uh, with Ydata or Superb AI, who are also awesome labeling engines within this space. Think about how something like that would work with GDPR. You have the right to be forgotten in in the GDPR, which is the regulation in Europe, uh, which is much more privacy focused than, for instance, the United States in terms of the regulation. So you have the right to say, you know what, I I walked into that 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 Starbucks or that store, uh, I don't know that Starbucks does this, so, so forgive me, Starbucks, if you don't, but you walked into this store and you and you were on a facial recognition database, you have the right to say, I don't want to be in that facial recognition database. So how do you go back 
and take someone out of it. If you haven't labeled the data and all, you know, of different people at different times on the day, if you haven't even labeled it by the day, maybe you can't label it by individual name, but if you haven't even labeled it by the day or the point in time, someone's going to have to go back and manually look for that. They're going to have to pull that out of there. Can you even recreate your model at that point? And can you effectively prove to an auditor, because trust me, regulation is coming down the pike where you will have to prove it to an auditor, that you changed that, that you took the interface's face out of that, that type of thing. So we're going to start to see those types of problems. When I look at Pachyderm specifically, there are a number of folks, I think, who have had a failed, an imperfect design pattern, right? Where Because where they basically are using something like Git to try to track lineage. And Git is amazing. The, the greatest tool on the planet for tracking uh, lineage and code, it's not really works for data, right? It's, and, and Pachyderm explored this in the early days and decided it didn't work for good reason. You are not going to pull down a one terabyte data set to 30 different laptops. Do you even have that much space? Do you, what does your internet connection look like? I hope it's a really good one. And every time you make changes. Now, of course, there's pointers to data, right? In GitHub, there are plugins for that. But it, that's, again, it's like, how do you synchronize all this? Go ahead and try to do a diff on uh, a thousand binary videos. I hope that you have infinite quantum processing power because that's going to take forever. So it's certain design patterns that kind of don't port over. And so that's why Pachyderm, for instance, used centralized data model that mirrored Git as a lineage but that threw out some of the things that didn't work. You're logging on as a data science remotely, running the commands and talking to the data set. So that, and it's keeping those kind of those changes over time, that immutability over time. That's a problem I think very few people understand, especially, again, you do a Kegel contest, you do a, a one person thing, or you have two or three data scientists and you're pulling down you know, a, a, ten, a 100 meg data set of text. You don't realize that, oh my gosh, when I now have... You know, one 500 gigs or, or multiple terabytes of unstructured data, and I'm trying to process, I'm trying to do sentiment analysis on tweets or news stories or whatever, all of a sudden it becomes a, a gigantic problem. And then, and I also see on the back end, these tools are going to have to really involve on the enterprise in a very boring but essential way. And that is these old systems, they are going to have to integrate into the authentication systems, the various security systems that exist within there. Yeah, a lot of them are going to exist behind the firewall, but there's going to need role-based access control. Hey, who touched this data set? When was it touched? Who touched this model before it went into production? You're doing fraud detection. I can easily begin to see you know, teams attempting to attack those types of models before they get into production. And if you think that's sci-fi, you only have to look at the attack that Kaspersky Labs figured out about the that I mentioned earlier about jackpotting, where they had hacked all the banking systems, and for four years, the banks didn't know that people were that they were stealing money because they were changing all the logs, and so people would literally show up with a mask in a bag and wait for the appointed hour for the, the machine to kick out all the money, and they'd take all the money. They were doing this for four years. They made off with billions of dollars. So if people are foolish enough to think that it, it that these machine learning systems are going to be able to exist in a silo that doesn't have to deal with the auditing, authentication, active directory, these boring things from the enterprise and from that have evolved now in the cloud space to be like a universal login, right? These types of things, then that's also another problem that various folks are not seeing. And then the simplest one is how do I get the simplest, biggest problem is when I'm using multiple tools, how do you, what is the connection between all those tools? How does it pass from one system to the other? Am I writing the glue code to do this? The answer is right now, probably. And, and, and if so, who's maintaining that code over time? You don't want it to be, this guy left the company and we can't update the, 
the Python scripts to make the model go from you know, <laughs> from to 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 Selden. We don't, <laughs> but we're trying to hire that guy back as a consultant. We don't, you don't want that. So this kind of maintainability over time. Many of the classic kind of IT problems are some of the biggest ones that we're going to see as this develops. And there's going to there is already becoming in big teams, but there's going to be more and more a bifurcation between data scientist, data engineer. And even just the, whatever we call the, the eventual just teams managing all of the stuff, the, the operation, data operations, machine learning operations, there's all these types of things are going to be bifurcated because you don't have, you don't want to be an expert in you know, advanced ma mathematics and an expert in running a giant clustered database and an expert in security. These things are going to be specialization. Very few teams, because they're so small, are, are understanding how much specialization is going to be happening. Interesting. Very interesting. And the, that specialization part is something that I've also been learning about like very recently because in, in my own job, it's uh, like I've had to deal with how we store our data in uh, to be compliant with regulations and how we can how we can track it throughout the entire pipeline. But also, like you said, on that serving part, how are we actually going to have this model work in Docker? And it's just at some point, you're just dealing with so many different things that it is, like you said, inevitable that there will be that specialization. And one other thing that I was really curious to get your opinion on because of your specific not only work in the Air Infrastructure Alliance with all these different companies, but also with your previous work in open source with Red Hat and consulting for, with them. So how, did, how do you view the difference between the open source platforms, the closed source platforms in the Infrastructure Alliance, their roles they play in the canonical stack? And just your overall thinking about the philosophies of these businesses, how they monetize, things like that. I have to, I'm going to admit my own personal bias towards open source, open core as a business model, because I, it was something I believed in since I was very young. I started at Red Hat when there were 1,500 employees, right? I was working with Linux for many years before that as well. And I, I saw that as just being something incredibly important at a point in time when I think businesses were still looking at it as, as I think uh, Balmer called it a cancer at one point or something, open source. It's just, it's, it, Microsoft has come so far from that uh, to be this, you know, data center, gaming, open source, like play nice in the sales box, sandbox, different from the, the Bill Gates with the Borer guy that they used to have on Slashdot for any of your older listeners. But the, uh, I'm dating myself now, but the, when I think about these things. I, again, tend to favor that open source approach. I think open source just becomes the answer over a long period of time. In other words, open source starts off uglier, quite honestly, than a proprietary version. The proprietary versions always come out and they have a slicker interface, white glove support, et cetera. And an engine is, it's functional. And it's more decentralized in an open source community. It's the, a lot of decisions are made by committee and engineers, and it's not flashy. And, but over time, those engines tend to build more powerful capabilities over time. And those tend to become the standards because then it becomes harder for the core engines to keep up. You saw this in the development of virtualization. You certainly saw the move to containers, right? Even if you look at something like you know, VMware in the early days and everyone trying to resist Kubernetes in the early days, but you look at their marketing now, it's, we've, always, we've always loved Kubernetes. I remember when you didn't actually, but this is, it's great that you've embraced it. But Kubernetes does not become Kubernetes if it only runs in Google. They tried to take 
Borg, which is still the biggest deployed orchestrator by an order of magnitude in the world, but they would had so many legacy ties into Google-specific systems, there was no way to decouple it and put it out there. They tried to create Omega, which kind of became a secondary thing with too many ties, and then eventually learned from that and moved to Kubernetes. And, and that became something that now is runs on everything from you know, personal data centers to, to Microsoft, everyone else. So I, I think there's a strong push in the environment. Initially, I had focused on the Alliance and it's grown you know, much beyond me. So it's grown into a, a series of folks who think about this and make the decision that we've allowed folks in who don't have an open source, open core uh, philosophy. And I think it was necessary because there are just, there, we've had so much of a move to SaaS in the last few years. And initially, I have to admit, this is one of my blind spots, this technologist futurist, where I looked at the cloud SaaS model in the early days. I'm like, mm, I get it, but I don't understand why you'd want to use a spreadsheet in the cloud and I can just work on Excel here. And of course, that's proven to be one of my worst predictions, right? And the, very, the vast majority of people have moved online. Even Microsoft has moved online with their productivity suite and you want it to be accessible everywhere. So it, it took a number of different maneuvers to get there. So there are certain types of things that are going to be beneficial in that stack as proprietary or SaaS-based solutions. I can think of something, if you've got a, a labeling system and you've got some proprietary algorithms that you've come up with that do a bunch of the labeling for you initially or take a stab at it first. And so that you, is, it, the algorithm basically says, this is a face, this is a plane, this is a teddy bear, so that the human laborers can double check it and they're accelerated. And the benefit of basically, if you have to move a lot of that data through running on their infrastructure and they're essentially paying that cost versus you building out or buying infrastructure as a service, building, buying that program, paying for the infrastructure as a service, paying for it. Whereas if you're just paying them a, a baseline fee and because of the order of scale, they're able to charge you 10,000 bucks versus the hundred grand you'd have to pay yourself if you're running the infrastructure. I think that has value. And a lot of, especially a lot of the data wrangling stages. And we've certainly seen a number of companies uh, that have distributed monitoring systems, for instance, across clouds, personalized infrastructure, et cetera, edge devices. I think you have to have that kind of visibility across different spaces. There's no reason to require that to be an open source bit because it really is quite naturally a fit towards a SaaS service that gets integrated into a lot of different things that you're paying pennies on the dollar for if you were running it and managing it on your own. So I do think that there's, I, even though my own personal bent is towards open source, open core, and I think the most important innovations in machine learning uh, tend to happen in open source, right? You look at PyTorch, you look at TensorFlow, you look at Scikit-Learn, you look at all these kinds of things that are essential to the things that we do, hugging faces, right? Hugging face or hugging faces, I can never get that one, but the, the great name, I just love the name either way. And I hope every AI company if they're out there names names their company that way. But yeah, the, they own the emoji too. They own the emoji, That's just, it's, it's such brilliant, it's such brilliant marketing, it really is amazing. Hugging faces, if you're listening, come join the alliance, I love you guys. But the, but I'm sorry, I'm gonna give myself a little plug there for that. But I, and I think that's actually, by the way, I think that's in the really interesting spaces, pre-baked models, that are already trained, I think that's just going to be a huge space that's still only beginning to develop. I, when I had that idea five, six years ago when I was a redhead, people looked at me like I, I had two heads. They're like, I don't understand why you'd ever want that. And because it might cost a million dollars to train this, this, uh, this transformer. So you might want someone else to have borne that cost. So I think, again, 
I see a seamless flow of open connectors and open source toolings and various SaaS services within this stack as the machine learning model flows through from data production. And I think for the near term, I don't know what this looks like in the long term because there's so many factors in motion. For the near term, you do need both. And I think both are incredibly valuable. As long as somebody is providing value, there's someone that I am interested in. And it also goes along with this idea of top-down versus bottom-up adoption of these different tools where the open source more naturally lends itself to being maybe used more by developers at the start, and then they bring it up up the chain until it eventually gets adopted at a broader level across the organization as more people start to find use out of it, and then they go to the company to get consulting on it, et cetera, et cetera, versus the closed source where it's, especially at a lot of enterprises, I know this firsthand, where you have to go through a these giant sales cycles, privacy checks, due diligence, et cetera. And what are some of those other pieces that you think you already mentioned data monitoring because it has to integrate with so many different things and does, like you said, lend itself to more of that model where you can scale up. What are some of the other pieces that you think are more likely to be in the future, those closed source managed solutions versus things that stay open source? You know, I think I think you're always going to have players. I think you're going to have players in all aspects of the machine learning loop in, in the canonical stack. I think you're going to you're going to have both open and closed source folks in all sides of it. However, there are certain aspects that I think lend themselves to some of the closed source things. And again, that proves economies of scale. So if I think about, I can easily envision a SaaS service where I'm able to train 50 iterations of a model on very expensive TPUs, GPUs, where I am not paying infrastructure costs, and where a company has built their own dedicated you know, data center or bought up at rock bottom prices that you and I can't get from AWS, GCP, Azure, all of their most cutting edge graphic cards, and they've rented them for a period of time to get to 100% usage. And you at the time say, look, I really need to train this very expensive transformer. It would cost me a million dollars to do it, my firm to do it on its own. I believe that there's going to be services that just have a farm of hundreds of you know, TPUs, GPUs, whatever other architectures come along that they have bought up at prices that no business is going to be able to do. And you'll be able to give it to them for a fraction of that price, run the training, get an, get an output that, that is going to be a fraction of that cost. So I can definitely see SaaS services like that becoming essential as we get bigger in, and bigger uh, in, in terms of this space. There are probably other places, none of them you know, immediately spring to mind. But when I think about something like that, in the same way that the cloud became cheaper and easier in many ways than, infrastructure, than running the infrastructure yourself, over a long enough time scale, I can see certain aspects of the pipeline becoming the same way. I used to, I came from the era where we built all of our own you know, data centers and we racked and stacked the computers and it, it made sense to always own versus lease. And that is completely flipped. I think most, most kids, they will never touch a physical server for any reason in their life. They'll never know what it's like to cut Cat5 cable and they will not understand what it means to put a top of the rack switch in there that has limitations because Amazon is essentially magic that you get wire speed to every aspect of your application, no matter what. They don't understand the, the level of intricacy that's involved in that. 
And that's a good thing. In other words, it's a thing that the cloud has gotten to such an amazing point that it's almost like a utility. And I, I can see aspects of the machine learning pipeline being utilities as it develops further along, whereas it would be incredibly cost prohibitive, especially in the training space. And where you would just say, cool, I paid this service 10,000 bucks in the same way that kind of sequencing genes at the beginning of the human genome project is billions of dollars and 11 years of R&D. And now you can get your gene sequence for 100 bucks. You're not going to go buy the genome sequence machine, but a bank of systems that's going to have them will allow you to get your gene sequence for 100 bucks. You'll get your model trained for 100 bucks versus 10,000. I think that's going to be a big value add within the chain. When you look at, and that definitely makes a lot of sense, connected to economy of scale, of course. And so when you're looking at the uh, bigger picture of, of all these different tools that are coming out, the different platforms with different companies, what are you looking, what are you really excited about right now in terms of the engineering around ML, the infrastructure around it? What are you actively researching? You know, from my standpoint, I like, I live and breathe in the boring parts of machine learning. I, I live in the plumbing. I live in the 95% right where where machine learning is done what gets what gets a lot of press as the alpha goes and right like these kind of big breakthroughs what gets lost in those is the all the infrastructure plumbing boring work of cleaning the data sets right? figuring out what approach we're going to take back and forth failure states midnight breakthroughs these are that's where i live in that space and to me to see that part evolve the plumbing evolve is boring to other people but it's very exciting to me because it allows the cool things to happen. Once that infrastructure is there and it's a commodity, anybody can build a web application now. Anybody can, can roll out WordPress and get a website up and running that's amazing with drag and drop, and they don't have to be a graphic designer anymore. Anybody can go grab a, a GUI interface that's beautiful for a, a smartphone application. They don't have to go build, they don't have to build a graphical framework to do it. So once we get to the point where all these pieces are much further developed, then you get to the point that the really exciting applications start to happen. You get to a point where the medical applications, you get to a point where predictive you know, health monitoring, where you know, cancer detection, vaccine production, but crunching through a million different genomes to find the proper surface, the proper drug candidates before a scientist has to do a single experiment that's very you know, cost inefficient because it has to exist IRL, right? It has to exist in the real world. These types of things, music applications, visual applications. I think of something like there was a bunch of work recently on bringing back the voices of great singers from the past. And I think some articles thought it was eerie. I thought it was just the beginning of an amazing breakthrough. Amazing if you could have you know, Ella Fitzgerald, you could take certain her range or the essence of her range and combine that with the beautiful diction of, of Frank Sinatra and, and combine that into a unique voice. I could see an entire music studio building on the capabilities of, of thousands of different avatars of unique voices and bundling them together in a unique way. These are the kinds of things that are just so exciting to me. These are the kinds of things when I look at it and think, you know, what a wonderful, beautiful world to live in. Right? What a What an amazing place to think about self-driving cars all the all of the discussions are every time a single you know self-driving car crashes that oh no it's doomed to fail right 
one something like 1.3 million people right, die every year in human car. Humans are terrible drivers, right? The fact is these machines could be you know, 50% better and save half a million lives. And they're probably going to be even better than that. So I think about the, the never having to get into uh, a car and worry about going anywhere and, and being a little tired and we are, am I going to, should I pull over for the time? just an amazing thing, right? To have these kinds of innovations that are coming down the pike. That This is the thing that I'm excited about. I'm also excited about as, and, and maybe this is the most futurist that we could get here is where does, just in the realm of, of possibilities, where do, where do the real breakthroughs go through? Because it does feel like we get an algorithmic breakthrough every two to five years. If you really look at it, it's convolutional neural nets, and then, yeah, LSTMs, which then gets yeah, superseded by transformers. But it really, it's not as many as you think. And each one of these could require a tremendous amount of R&D, and then there's a lot of fine-tuning around these. I'm, I'm in reinforcement learning, probably the, the big four. When I look at genetic algorithms, maybe the fifth. I look at when do we get to the point that we can abstract in a general purpose way. And I, I don't like the word AGI, but it, it doesn't have to be an AGI, but it, it can be a multi-faceted learner. Even a, even a squirrel level intelligence is, is very, it would be very interesting to us. A bees level intelligence, these are incredibly intelligent creatures. And I wonder whether, how do we get there? Is there someone out there working on a whiteboard, some brilliant person who's thinking about a universal learning algorithm, or at least a semi-universal learning algorithm? And I know folks are working on it. That we've had these very narrow artificial intelligence, which are tremendously exciting. Is it DARPA? Is it one of the think tanks that's working through on this? Is it some genius sitting in a room who's going to just come out with it? Uh, does it come out of the Connectome projects where we basically can brute force it? In other words, the Connectome projects, if people don't know, are basically trying to simulate and study and map all of the neurons within the human brain and, and, and within other life forms that have a smaller uh, subset of neurons. Eventually, at some point, if you're simulating that, can you just watch a section of that and go, we don't know exactly how, we don't exactly know how universal learning works in, in this particular domain, but we watch these parts of the brain light up as it's learning that so we can basically just approximate the math of that. And then you retrofit an algorithm together. I think that is actually an underrated spot. I don't know that a lot of people are looking at it in that way. We don't necessarily have to figure out the math behind a universal algorithm, we might be able to even brute force or hack our way there, which would be pretty exciting. And that to me is where we really start to see the Cambridge explosion. Really the intelligence revolution. We've gone through hunter-gatherer stage, the agrarian revolution, you know, to the industrial revolution, to the information age. And to me, uh, tomorrow is really the intelligence age. It's really the explosion of intelligence. Yeah, it's absolutely, I was just telling a friend this, I'm so glad that I'm alive today and not sometime in the past just because of how many things are just starting to emerge and how much of that tech is just starting to become more prominent. And like you said, specifically with the more generalized learning algorithms, it's an astounding fact when you think about it really that GPT-3 was underfitted and only used one-tenth of all the language data that was out there. And that was only on one modality of text. And it's not even we're not even starting to hit that, like the, the apex of the second derivative starting to flatten out in those scaling properties. And so people think GPT-3 is amazing, but we've already seen, like people who have read these, read these the scaling lot papers, you can see far in the future, this thing is going to be way, way better than we what we can imagine right now because we just don't have the hardware to run this, how run uh, this in an efficient way with all the data that they have and with the model size that is even possible. So 
just absolutely incredible. Even if they go back and pair it with uh, if the history of artificial intelligence is going back to old ideas and finally making them work. So I could envision us going back to symbolic logic, which is not is not something that we care about much anymore. I think what's his name Hinton was working on an idea that doesn't quite scale yet, but where you could essentially give it geographic primitives. You could teach the machine about essentially basic spheres and shapes or whatever, and that, which gives it a leg up in terms of understanding. It's still really early stages, but what kinds of kind of basic knowledge can we code into the, the machines in, with, in a symbolic way and then pair those with the self-learning models of, of neural nets or whatever comes after those, uh, that becomes incredibly uh, useful as well. I think we're going to start to see a, a combination of those two systems going back in time, just like we keep going back and mining. Oh, wait, these tech algorithms are not completely useless. They're totally, <laughs> they, they do all these things we didn't expect or uh, th that kind of stuff. I think we're going to see more and more. We, we've only just seen the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There was a paper that uh, was essentially saying that transformers, speaking of the old ideas things, that transformers are like, there's actually a very specific form of this one thing that was actually first thought about in the 80s. And we're starting to see, yeah, like you said, way more and more of those. So very interesting time to be a researcher, to be an engineer, someone who's able to use these technologies. Very much so. Very much so. And now to move on to a slightly different topic, but very much highly related. The You've also started the Practical AI Ethics Alliance. Is it an alliance or a Practical AI Ethics Group? Alliance at this point, yes. Alliance. And I've heard you say in one of your prior talks that this is obviously going to be such a big issue. And it's especially interesting when you think about how companies, countries who start to not, who are pay, playing a bit more fast and loose with some of these ethics, they're going to have an advantage and you've posited that maybe all the model training will happen in a country like China, where it's a, a lot of these privacy and security things are much less important issues. So can you talk about how you're thinking about practical AI ethics, the emphasis on the practical part I like a lot, and how that will play in this world of somewhat misaligned incentives across countries? Yeah, so the practical ethics thing is, is something I'd really like to see take off a bit more. I think the Infrastructure Alliance took off faster. Naturally, there's a commercial interest in it, and it's easy, it's more easily understandable, and the ethical implications are still a little bit in the future. So I think it's harder for companies to grasp just how important it is, but I have done some consulting with with companies, uh, large companies, actually, that that do understand the problems that they're going to face. And I, I think I and you mentioned, I should get this out of the way, because you mentioned that I said some of these things might get trained in a place like China or somewhere else that has a sort of less restrictions on the, what you can do with private data and things like that. In other words, you might see the European Union or the United States be at a disadvantage because they pass a, a law that says it has to, you have to respect certain privacy rights, you have to have right to be forgotten, you have to have these things. So I can see people attempting to skirt those things by going to places that are data havens, if you will. It goes almost back to a cyberpunk idea, right? And you may even need to have kind of American-style anti-corruption laws where it's, that's great that you're in another country. The anti-corruption law still applies to you. You won't be able to go. So it'll be a moving target for how these things evolve. I think that the ethical implications of how we use these things are one of the most important issues. And I think it's reported in a very poor way in that we tend to worry about very dumb fantasy problems in artificial intelligence. Again, Terminator's taking over the world. When we have real challenges with black box proprietary algorithms doing 
sentencing, deciding whether a resume gets through or not, deciding who gets parole, who doesn't, deciding whether somebody gets promoted or doesn't. And you look at something like the Weapons of Math Destruction TED Talk, where they, where a teacher ends up suing the school board, and they get access to the proprietary data, the proprietary algorithm, and, and they show like a scatter. It looks like a they're trying. They're expecting a bell curve of performance, and it, the data is graphed as it looks like white noise. It's just a scatter plot, right? There's no logic to it, whatever. And or a teacher who's rated, you know, a 95th percentile you know, one year changes absolutely nothing, but the algorithm ranks them at 20% the next year. We're going to need a lot of transparency in these types of things, and there are a ton of very thorny, difficult issues in this. In other words, your initial instinct might say if you wanted to build uh, an algorithm for sentencing, whether, and whether you should do that or not should be a discussion in of its first place. But there, there are already algorithms that are in place for a decade giving recommendations to judges. The judges still have uh, discretion. They might not be computer savvy, and they might just say, well, computer thinks this. It must, must be very important. And it might not be. It might be totally junk. And there's also really thorny issues within there of you might say, cool, we don't want any sensitive characteristics to be considered within the data. That seems like an obvious solution. But in fact, there are examples where you might actually want to have the sensitive characteristics in there because the algorithm might be able to make better decisions in terms of making it more fair. But then again, you start to run in political problems. Well, oh my gosh, we can't, you definitely can't take and have one algorithm for you know, folks of a certain socioeconomic background and one's for another one. Oh my God, we can't do that. But realistically, you might get a better result Whereas if you try to make one generic one that covers both white collar crime and you know, sticking up a liquor store and trying to average over both of them, what you're going to get is a problem where you're putting too many people in jail or letting too many people free, whereas you could tune it if you were able. So there's a lot of thorniness within here. My sense of the practical ethics and the consulting I've done is to design an internal program where I, I get people, I force people through a series of questions to look at their own ethics. And to not give a standard wishy-washy, both sides of their mouth answer to very specific issues that I'm studying. So I did one where we were looking at, uh, they, were bringing in, uh, they were bringing in machine learning systems to uh, parse through resumes and to recommend hiring. And a lot of sticky issues within that. And the thing is, humans have gotten really good at being able to say two things, and but then have a policy that kind of secretly favors one side or the other. In other words, everyone knows what the correct answer is on diversity. And but at that doesn't but you can you can put a policy on paper about diversity, but the truth is you can sneak around it through your hiring practices. Whereas an algorithm is going to be very clear. It's going to go, it's going to do what you tell it to do. And so if you tell it I need more a diverser pool of candidates, it's going to lean in one direction. And so you really have to mean that. And so a lot of the questions that I end up asking are designed to catch people out of that type of thinking, to force them to pick a side of what they really mean and not be able to just give the single answer. And then I kind of graph those over time to say, look, over time, here's, what your, here's where your organization legitimately stands on these issues. If you're forced to choose between these two challenges, which side do you fall upon? And I think, and this has to be something that's done privately, has to be done anonymously. People know what answers to give in a group. It has to be done you have to aggregate the data and you have to have a very savvy kind of uh, you know, structure inside to be able to interpret this thing and not lose their cool and find their, their own, where they fit on an ethical forest. Because the truth is, 
Anybody designing a universal ethics standard is doomed to fail. It is absolutely doomed to fail. And so really, it has to be a personal thing where an organization has to very clearly define what it is that they're going to do. And then they have to design systems to continually check those things over time, human in the loop systems. But they also have to know where they stand so that they can request, hey, where did you get the data? How, how, you know, what kinds of algorithms do you use? Are, are you using, are you just deleting the PII or the sensitive characteristics? But the truth is you actually haven't done, you really are, they're sneaking in through the back door in, in another way. Or are actually using, are you paying attention to the field of how these ethical algorithms are developing and how we deal with these at a mathematical level? So that, that is the, the thing that they have to do. They both have to examine their own ethics, decide where they stand, and vet their vendors in a specific way. And that's the programs that I've designed. I don't see anyone else doing it. Ethics tends to be, here's my statement of 10 platitudes. And, and honestly, sometimes the work that I've done, the only, I'll, I'll put up a 30-page document on the internal procedures and the questions and the data, and I'll get two comments. And then and, and they won't necessarily know how to implement it because it's complicated and oversight boards and all this. And then, and then I, get, I write the 10 platitudes and everybody's got something to say on this because they all, it, it's all about marketing and whatever. And it allows you to say one thing and do whatever you want. To me, that's not ethics, right? To me, and I understand the necessity to have a publicly facing thing, but I, I want I want companies to really think about what these things mean. I want them to understand also when they make policy decisions. Do you em employ? Do you use an employee monitoring program for where folks are driving or where well, these kinds of things? What What are the implications of doing so? If you are you trying to control, are you trying to control attrition? Are you then creating more attrition? By doing something like that, or are you are you inviting people to game the system because you have the incentives in the wrong way? And is that even the kind of workplace environment that you want to have? So I encourage people both to think about really the technologies that they adopt. And it's okay to say, no, this is not a technology we wish to have in-house. You don't need to, just because this is the, the de rigueur, we need to have a Facebook cam taking snapshots of our remote employees every 10 seconds. To me, that type of technology is disgusting. And I think Companies really need to look closely at whether they want to do that. Second, they need to examine their own implicit views on the world, and they have to come to a consensus that this is where we stand. Then they need to be able to direct their teams. You have to build an AI red team to look at these different things and check that it's constantly fitting these, and you have to build human-in-the-loop procedures, which are going to be individual to the types of algorithms that you're creating. Very few people are looking at it like this. I hope that it becomes more widespread. It's been, I think, it's been semi-disappointing to me that it hasn't become more widespread yet, but I have hope over the long term that it will be absolutely necessary simply because you know, governing bodies are going to issue more and more standards that are going to be by their nature nebulous and uh, folks are going to have to do it. But I encourage companies to really look at their ethics from the very beginning, design these things in. And there's also an opportunity, there's an advantage, in my opinion, from a bottom line ROI standpoint. That you want to know what your one of the things I designed is a public relations procedure. You don't want to be cobbling together your answer when your artificial intelligence inevitably makes a mistake, and you want to know. Hey, here's the, we understand this wasn't intentionally coded by someone. We are on it. Here's the procedure. We'll get back to you and then get back to them. We want to have all that system in place to deal with these things. So I think from a bottom line PR standpoint, it makes perfect sense, and then also from the ability to control it at, an, at a security standpoint, you want to. We have a chance that we're constructing these new types of systems to build in security from the beginning. The web it was just cobbled together afterwards with all of the 
implications that we've seen. You go look at the, the number of breaches in the world. You look at any of the websites that track these breaches and you realize, oh my God, every major company that I care about has leaked data at some point in time. It's terrifying when you really, like when you look at the scale of it, there's a chance now to build differential privacy and, and encryption and all these things into the data set and into the procedure. I hope that companies learn from the mistakes of the past and do it. I'm not 100% confident that they will. I'm worried that it'll have to be something they, the ethics and security are things they graph down again later. But if I have any say in it, it'll be something they think about now. And, and, and they should continue to think about uh, throughout the entire life cycle of this development. Yeah, and that was such an amazing answer. And I really love the specificity that you went into with exactly how a lot of these, a lot of companies are making these mistakes and not necessarily taking them as important as they should be. There was an article I was reading about how engine software engineers tend to be less exposed to the effects of what of their work than other types of engineers. So if you're like you're a civil engineer and your bridge fails, it's just like very clear of what happened and that it was your firm's fault, etc. Whereas with software, it's and as software becomes even more important, these things have real effects that affect people's lives. And even though we're not necessarily able to see those effects as clearly as we would if we were engineering some real world system, the article is essentially called to just take your work more seriously. They haven't been schooled in this type of thing either. It just hasn't been something they've had to think about. Or even even what happens when you don't have a diverse team, I think I think originally the some of the smartwatches didn't have period tracking on it for women because there were no women on the team. And so the, the fellas didn't think that this was interesting, that this would be something that, be, that women would want. Even something as basic as that, which is not an ethical issue, that's just a, that's a diversity issue, but there's also all kinds of these ethical implications that I think they just haven't had to think about. Oh, they built an application, somebody told them, build an application that signs people onto the web, and, and there weren't these ethical implications in it, but there are ethical implications to facial recognition, to personal identifying data, medical data, hiring, firing people, sentencing algorithms. And I think if you're if you are a machine learning engineer, an IT person, a computer scientist coming up in the world today, you have got to be more aware of these kinds of things because they are going to be part and parcel to your work in a way that they weren't. When I was a young man, we were just trying to build web applications and and back office applications, and the implications of the ethical implications of whether you should have a uh, an order routing database or a or a financial tracking system were were not a problem, right? Yes, you do wish. Yes, we wish to have an expense tracking system uh, internally, uh, but when it's making decisions on you know, who gets a loan and who doesn't, you need to have a team that seriously considers these issues and understands them very well. And you need to have that built in from the very beginning. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a, a great place to start to wrap up this conversation. And we'll get the rapid fire questions right after this. But is there anything that I didn't ask about or that you think is, or just a, a message that you want to leave with listeners? I mean, I, you did an amazing job. You really have covered all the things that I've been burning on and excited about recently. You, I really appreciate how much research you've done and the, the intelligence of your questions and really the, the way that you've covered it comprehensively. I, I feel really honored to be on the show and to have gone through so many things that I'm excited about in such detail. I think too often it's missed and I get to talk about one tiny fraction of it and it becomes a soundbite, uh, but I don't actually get to cover the whole spectrum. So uh, really you covered it uh, almost everything that I'm excited about completely. And so I appreciate it. 
Yeah, of course. And it's so great to be talking to people like you who are so obviously passionate about all these topics. And it's just not something that you tend to see in a lot of, or it's not something that you tend to encounter if you're just trying to find them randomly. Yeah. And now to getting to some of the things that you would, you want to promote. So AI Infrastructure Alliance, of course, can be found at ai-infrastructure.org. Practical AI Ethics is at practical-ai-ethics.org. All right. Perfect. Perfect. And of course, we're hoping that we can, we didn't touch on Pachyderm that much, just mentioned it throughout the show, but we uh, definitely were hoping to get Jimmy Whitaker on the show at some point so we can dive more into some of those data lineage, immutability, versioning features and all that are, of course, so important. I'm sure and he'll be finally, super excited. I'm sure he'll be super excited. <laughs> of course. And finally, to get to some of the listener favorites, the rapid fire questions. First of which, what do you do for fun outside of work? I love to travel. I was digital nomading for two years. All that's come to a uh, crashing halt during the, the pandemic. So uh, my partner and I very much look forward to uh, bouncing around Europe. I moved to Europe last year and I really was looking forward to spending a lot of time in that. So we're looking forward to getting on the road once it's safe to do. And beyond that, I love to read. I love to learn new things, video games, movies, love cooking. We really, uh, the my partner and I have been very excited to get much better at cooking during the pandemic. And we've always been foodies and really enjoyed eating out and, and going to some you know, fantastic restaurants. And I think our appreciation of them has now uh, gotten much better having learned to cook much better on our own. And so I'm really excited when we get a chance to get back out there and experience uh, some of all the restaurants that we've been missing. That's great. Yeah. Transitioning from travel to cooking during the pandemic. Yeah. And next, what are some book? What is a book or or books that you most often recommend to other people? Oh, I've got a, I've got a ton of them, but I would say the ones that I've read recently that I loved was Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. She was a former uh, poker player, and she talks about thinking in probabilities and uh, divorcing your decisions from the outcome and understanding. Did you make a good decision or not? So she's got an example where uh, a board member was sad that they uh, felt like he'd screwed up firing the chief executive officer because he wasn't leading the company in the right direction and they hadn't been able to find another one. And he felt like it was a mistake, but she would look at an analysis of his decision and realize, no, the, the, the CEO did need to be let go and it was a good decision. You ran into bad luck after that which is independent of the original decision, which was a good decision. So there's always these two components of, of luck. And I think more people can get closer to objective reality and get closer to understanding the world as it actually is instead of how they imagine it to be. They can make better decisions in life. That one was a very exciting book that I read recently. I also read, uh, I love history books, and they, I recently read uh, History in Six Glasses, which covered, it used the frame of a beer, wine, spirits, Coca-Cola, tea, and coffee. And I thought it would be a loose lens to look at it, but it is unbelievable how intricate and how intimately tied to world history and events, economics, culture, all of these drinks were at different times and how much they, they've meant to the history of the world. So that was written by a uh, former uh, a reporter from The Economist or editor from The Economist. It was just a brilliant read that I've enjoyed a, a great deal recently. There's also one, the last one I'll recommend is Super Thinking, which came from, I believe, the fellow who and his wife who created DuckDuckGo, uh, the search engine, uh, the privacy-based search engine. And it is a series of mental models of how to think more clearly about the world. It talks through all of our built-in heuristics 
the limitations of those heuristics. Maybe my favorite story being the cobra effect, where I think in India, the British government was worried about deadly cobras. So they offered an incentive for if you brought cobra tails in, you could get two bucks or whatever. And so initially it worked really well. But then, of course, enterprising fellows started breeding cobras to get more money. And so then when the British government finds out about it, they cancel the policy, to which point all the entrepreneurs now release their worthless cobras into the forest. And now they've doubled the population. So be careful of your incentives. It just has a, well, a series of wonderful kind of stories like that and shows you how to think better. I'm very, I'm very big on uh, getting people to learn how to think more clearly. If you can think in a critical thinking, my great mentor always taught me, uh, you can do whatever you want in life. And, and those are the the three books that I've been burning on recently. Oh, very interesting. I'm definitely going to, that, that second one in particular, the history through six classes, I'm definitely going to have to check out. And next is, what is a machine learning AI use case or research area that you think is overlooked, underrated? Uh, the arts, hands down, one, 100%. I just saw, for instance, even in Photoshop, a, a number of machine learning filters started to come in in beta in the latest iteration. Uh, so it can do different hairstyles or, or different types of diffusion on an image or whatever, and they're adding more all the time. So it would process on the cloud and come back. So if, if Adobe is looking at this kind of stuff for the arts, you absolutely should be. Music generation, music enhancement, visual enhancement, even just artificial intelligence, right? In the in video games, right? Like making the, the enemies more uh, you know, you know, more challenging. It's still, humans tend to be the uh, you know the best thing. The, no, you're no the AIs are no contest in Battlefront Two versus. It's the quickest way to level up is to go play co-op and knock out all the AI enemies, which are just dumb. Versus playing another human, which just surprised me with their infinite agility and tactical ability all the time as they, they blast me to, to, to smithereens. But I think any time, without a doubt, the arts, thinking about um, how to enhance the arts. And even if you're going to make this a passion project, right, if your main job is making sure people click on more ads or whatever, that's fine. Learn everything you can, do these projects. And if you're involved in a more exciting research area, great, amazing healthcare, things like that. But look at the arts if you've, if you've overlooked it. Spend time on it because in five 10, 10 years or so, the big uh, you know, video game companies, the big you know, visual houses like Adobe all the, and uh, the music studios, all these folks are going to be just hungry for folks who have built skills in these areas. And I think it's going to be an amazing area for a lot of young from research scientists today. Yeah, that's a, such a great message. And yeah, the, those Photoshop features are absolutely stunning. The first one I think of those was extending a background where you have a square image you want to make it rectangular mm -hmm. you just have it extend it's absolutely crazy that it's, that works. So, it's so cool I, it blew my mind when i first saw him i was like oh my gosh this is really this is the beginning man it's all coming it's all coming together it just was so cool to see it yeah exactly uh and the next what advice would you give to someone just entering the field of machine learning ai you know, this is a hard one. I think I'm from Gen X, and so I have a very different perspective on, on what work is and, and how it works. But I would say, whatever you do, the thing that has been most successful for me in life is just following my own personal passions. I always did my job well, but I always made time for the things that I was interested in. Always made time for learning new things, studying, following that interest and that creativity wherever it leads. And when I think about my life now and the things that I get to do and the things that I get to help shepherd into existence through my creativity, 
all of those different beads on a string have come together. Nobody is ever going to um, come to you and say, hey, here's the perfect set, of, here's the perfect job for you, here's the perfect set of circumstances that you needed, and here's all the time in the world to get it figured out, right? None of those things will happen. You've got to make it happen for yourself. You've got to create the space to be creative and to figure out things and to follow your passions. You've got to cut out TV and video game times. I think of how many times I had to cut out those things in order to get better at writing and thinking uh, and to follow my passions in that place. And I say the same thing in any space, create time for yourself to follow your own interests because your own interests are the things that are going to lead to the most promising life for yourself later. It's the thing that you're going to actualize later in your career. In the beginning, you're going to do a job maybe that's not something you really want to do. But if you keep working on your passions, keep following the threads of your creativity, later on, there's a really good chance that you get to do something that you're excited to wake up for every day. Next, what have you recently changed your mind on? I change my mind all the time, usually which direction Bitcoin is going. It really is, you know, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a roundabout answer on this. Is I, I think flexibility of mind is an important thing. And uh, too often when you look at something like a political back and forth, or you look at something on Twitter, like on the 5th of December, 2017, you said this, you changed your mind, you jerk. Uh, of course, if I get new information about something, that is what an intelligent person does. They evolve their understanding of things over time. I don't believe that somebody holding a position against all new and contradictory evidence is an example of strength of mine. I, I consider it a weakness of mine. So uh, I like to change my mind all the time. I'm constantly, I'm a learning system and, and I'm taking in new information all the time. My Mental model is never done and will be updated until the day that I am no longer here. And I encourage everyone to not be afraid to change. Do not hold fast to something just because you learned it. In fact, they think about in the Thinking in Bets book, she talks about how beliefs are formed. How we think beliefs are formed are you hear something, you vet it, then you decide whether you want to believe it. How we actually form beliefs is you hear something, you automatically believe it. Then if you have the inclination and the, under, and the desire, then you go back and vet it and maybe you change your mind. This is, it's a weakness in the human mind to uh, hold fast to something because we tend to just hear, in, in the old days, if you just heard the tiger in the forest, it made sense to perfectly believe it the first time, right? Because the people who didn't believe it are gone. The people who did believe it are alive. They avoided the tiger. But nowadays you hear all kinds of crazy things and you get rewarded for it. There's a tribe out there who believes whatever crazy nonsense that you want to believe. And uh, I encourage everyone to really examine their belief structures, look at the things. Where did I get this information? How did it come into my mind? What is uh, the reason that somebody put it into my mind? Is there anything that disproves it? And, and how can I get smarter, better uh, at understanding the world around me? And how much does my belief system accord with objective reality? That's a fantastic answer. And lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? I mean, I think going back to the last one, I think that I, I have strong beliefs weekly held. And I have strong beliefs because I feel like I've done the research understanding to look at them, but I believe in having them weekly held. In other words, I believe them in being updatable. I think I'm in the, I think I'm in the, the very small minority. I think a, a number of folks take tremendous pride from holding a belief structure, no matter how um, 
crazy or out of date it is. And I think that's just a path to misery uh, in life. But it does seem to be the default state for many folks in the world. And I would just, I wish that we were taught to think better in society. I wish that the critical thinking and the desire to continually learn your entire life. I wish that was the default uh, mode that we learned in school. I, I consider it fundamental. And I don't see it in society as something that's uh, is generally prized. Yeah, that's yeah, a great message. And it's obvious that you are someone who who lives that message. Is like you said, you're a learning system. And through all the topics that we've been able to cover in this episode, it's quite amazing how the depth of your understanding of a lot of these, a lot of different things. So once again, I cannot thank you enough for coming onto the show and for letting us have a glimpse of, of some of the things that you've learned throughout your long career. Thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. Again, appreciate the, the amazing questions and a chance to run through some of these, these very diverse, you know, very diverse aspects of human knowledge. So thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.